Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I can't understate just how lucky and grateful I am to get to work with and know some of, if not well, probably the smartest people in cybercrime and online fraud prevention in the world, whether it's you know, getting to work with them as clients or getting to support their vertical or their industry or just a few conversations I get to have with some of you. I really am so grateful and I learn something from every person that I talk to. doesn't matter if they've been in the fraud prevention industry for six months or 20 years. I feel like we all have different perspectives and because it's such an emerging industry and we didn't go to college or university for this, there's always something that we can be learning. And if you're a true fraud fighter, you want to be an eternal learner. That's for sure. You have strong curiosity and a strong sense of justice and a passion for protecting people on the internet, protecting your company and your customers, as well as making sure that your customers have the best experience, the good customers, the ones who aren't stealing identities or payment methods or abusing your system. And if I had my way, every person I know would be a guest on Prodology. Because like I said, there's something to learn from everyone. And I know we all enjoy it. I know that's why this podcast has been successful. We all really enjoy learning from each other and feeling connected because there are so many commonalities between those of us who are passionate for this industry. But I also understand that not all communications teams or leadership teams at every company, especially the ones a lot of the ones that I work with, because let's face it, you guys work for some of the biggest or the biggest brands in the world. And not all PR or communication teams understand or really think about the fact that by giving permission for their fraud leaders to speak on the podcast and share a little bit of what they know, they get to show off how good they are at hiring people. And the fact that their leaders in fraud prevention and trust and safety care about the customers and care about protecting their company. So I'm always grateful whenever a communications department signs off and says, yep, they can speak on fraudology. And today, I got to have a really good conversation with one of those people. When I think of some of the smartest and just kindest people I know in fraud, Alan Buck is one of them. Alan is the head of e-commerce fraud for Bed Bath & Beyond. He's also the head of the organized crime, organized retail crime and corporate investigations departments. So he uh, doesn't have a ton of free time. So I'm really grateful that he stopped by Fraudology to have this conversation. When I talked with him at MRC and he was on the episode we had that we recorded on the last day of MRC Vegas this year. I think we titled it Sleep Derived and Hangry because we were. <laughs> and he shared a little bit about his thoughts and observations at MRC, especially because it was the first one he got to attend in person. We were talking about it after that recording, and he was sharing with me just some of the things that he had observed of just conversations he'd had with different fraud leaders at the event and a few sessions he attended and a session that he spoke in about a few lessons in his leadership and his time in being in leadership for online fraud prevention that he wanted to share with the rest of the industry. He's very passionate about some of the tough lessons he's learned and how important it is to fail and that's a really hard one for me, to be honest. I've been thinking about something that Alan said in this conversation for the last few days, and I think that's what I'm going to be talking more about on Thursday, because we really crammed a lot of topics into the episode that I kind of want to sort through a little bit more on Thursday, because as much as we talk about strategy and tactical and practical advice for fraud, and we talk about fraud methods and all of that on the podcast, I think it's also really important to talk about professional development and personal development. Because if you're a fraud fighter, you want to be an eternal learner. You want to be a learn-it-all. You never want to be a know-it-all. And there are some things that we do 
that get in our own way and we don't always realize it. And there's some things that, you know, I've heard people complain about or struggle with, but I know that if you listen to this conversation with Alan, he's going to provide some interesting perspectives on them. And he might challenge you a bit. And I hope that you welcome them. I wish that we could share some of the specifics of the successes that Alan has had in his time heading up e-commerce fraud for Bed Bath & Beyond, but let me just tell you it's significant. They really went through a time of, and it's not, it's because of the growth and change in the internet, right? It's not like there's what you were doing in fraud three, four, five years ago worked then, but it may not work now. And Alan shares he identified that in his company when he first headed up this department. So really, we're going to talk about two different things that Alan focused on today that led to some of the biggest successes in his role within the head of e-commerce fraud for Bed Bath & Beyond. The first part has to do with how to identify the benefits and importance of upgrading and changing your overall fraud strategy from reactive and solely focused on payment fraud to being more proactive, less manual, able to expand scope and revenue protection and recovery beyond just preventing and responding to chargebacks. This change in strategy required a new fraud tool, and he'll share how his approach and mindset to fraud strategy and selecting the right fraud tool wasn't without its challenges, and he'll share that, but they also provided a lot of lessons. And I think Alan subscribes to something that I do too, and I think a lot of you do too is if we fall down and we get back up and we learned a lesson from that, we'd much rather share it with our peers so you don't do the same thing. And I really appreciated everything that he shared in this. But how he changed his approach and mindset to fraud strategy and how being open to change, like even when there are a lot of unknowns and those of us that are risk adverse in our career or in our, in our day to day, will often be risk adverse everywhere else. And that's scary. But he'll share how it was a game changer for their team and the overall business. And then he'll also talk about how focusing on relationship building internally with different departments and with peers within the industry has impacted his success. He'll also provide some advice and examples of how some fraud fighters and fraud leaders can get in their own way. I know you're all really going to enjoy listening to Alan share some of the most important lessons and keys to success that he's learned most recently in his career. And like I said, because we covered quite a lot and I've found myself thinking about this conversation for the last two days before recording this introduction, I'm going to dive into some more of this on Thursday's episode. I just, I think that there's so much gold here that I just want to highlight some of it. And I think it'd be good for you to listen to the debrief a little bit too. But until Thursday, unless you listen in on this conversation I had with Alan Buck, like I said, I know you'll really enjoy it. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. 
Today, I am joined by Alan Buck. Alan is the head of e-commerce fraud, as well as organized retail crime and corporate investigations for Bed Bath & Beyond. So he has a lot of free time to come stop by Fraudology. I'm completely kidding. But I have gotten to know Alan over the last few years and really enjoy and appreciate his perspective and everything that he shares with his peers within retail. And I asked him to come on the podcast and I'm so grateful that he obliged. Alan, thanks so much for uh, coming on Fraudology. Of course. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, you were kind of, you kind of had a cameo, I guess, on the episode that we did the last day at the MRC, where we all, you know, got in a room and talked about a few things. And that was fun, but didn't exactly get to dive into a lot. That's right. Yeah, it was an exhausting day and ex- after an exhausting week. Hopefully we're a little more refreshed from than the last time, right? Well, we can hope, right? I, my voice is back. So there's that. That's a positive. <laughs> yeah. I know one of our one of our friends that's also in the retailer group said that we're listening back to that. She's it made my voice hurt again because I lost my voice too. I was like, sorry, I was a little squeaky. But well, you know, as I mentioned, you do a lot at Bed Bath and Beyond, and you've been there for a long time. I think sixteen years, almost seventeen years. Actually, seventeen, almost eighteen. So, but, oh wow, but okay, my math right? is off. Wow. And we often joke that fraud fighter is just another term for company firefighter or company janitor. You're really just cleaning things up and saving the day, though, a lot. And so I'd love for you to uh, kind of share a little bit about how you what your path looked like on its way to managing e-commerce fraud and sure. everything so else you do. It's, uh, it's probably a little different than how most people land here in this role. So prior to joining the Bath Beyond, I was in the Marine Corps. And then after coming in with the company, I started on the store side, actually, as a department manager. And so I, I managed our, what we call hard side, which is all of our like cookware and things of that nature. And then within, within the first few months, I was promoted to an assistant manager and started managing hard side again on a bigger scale and then was, became an operations manager for the company. And then after a few years, then it, I became a store manager for the company. So kind of came up through the store side first, which is obviously, again, a bit unique, but it gives me a, a different perspective. It gave me a bit of a different perspective as I got into the loss prevention world or profit protection world. And so after a few years of managing our stores, coming from the Marine Corps, it was something that I'd always wanted to get into the loss prevention world. I had tried it to, I delved into it a little bit with a, a prior company that I worked with for a short time. But anyway, I was given the opportunity by uh, one of my former managers. He took a roll of the dice on me and allowed me to jump into that space. And so I got into the physical side of it. So the in-store internal and external investigations for the company. And then after that, was tasked with growing an organized crime investigations program for the company. And another one of my former bosses headed up that that project, but I began digging into organized retail crime and, and what that meant exactly and went out to meet with some peers out in New Mexico where they had built a fantastic ORC program and brought that back to the Carolinas and built what we call CORCA, which is Carolina's Organized Retail Crime Alliance ah. for North and South Carolina, where we work with law enforcement and loss prevention professionals to to, to try to uh, fight against the, the those that are out there doing crime as a job. And so we, after that, a position became available in our corporate office, which was for an e-com manager. At the time, I had no clue what, what I was doing or about e-com. And so when I did the interview, I met with a couple of our senior leadership and they were throwing around a whole lot of acronyms in the e-com space. And I mm-hmm. told them they might as well be speaking another language to me. <laughs> <laughs> I seriously, I said, I know nothing about what you're talking about, but I have a willingness to learn. And, and I'd love to get into the space. And so I did. I got into as, a, as an e-com fraud manager and trained under one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. I know her and, well. Until she moved on. And I worked under another gentleman who was, again, one of the smartest people I've met also and helped me. He came from a world where he came from the field as well. So he saw things through the same filters that I saw. Them. And we really spoke each other's language and kind of see things from a bit of a different perspective coming into e-com. And again, with that store background. And so we looked at things a bit differently. And that's how I got to where I am. So we've had a few other people. I think Gary Novello, who you know, was on the podcast about a year ago. And he also has ORC background, organized retail crime. But sometimes I wonder why ORC is, I guess they've got 10 decades before e-commerce fraud, but they're a lot more built out. They work together. They're also oftentimes a lot more accepted or budgeted for within retail than e-commerce fraud sometimes. But we don't need to go into all that. But 
I'd love to understand, you know, you talk about that different perspective that you came to with e-commerce fraud. And I think that's something that I really appreciate learning from you and Gary, because you guys do look at it in a different way and solve problems in a, in a different way, but in a good way, good different, because there's never one way to do things in this industry. So how did that perspective, especially working organized crime and seeing all of that, because there's a lot of organized crime that happens on online too, right? So how was that helpful to you when you got to the e-commerce side? Well, I guess it helped me to just hone my skills when it came to the investigations and doing, mm-hmm. because when you're doing the ORC investigations for physical stores, you're, there's still a digital element to that, an e-commerce mm-hmm. element to that. A lot of the fencing locations are going to be marketplaces or things online to be able to sell those. And so it did help me just by honing some of those investigation skills on the own digital standpoint. And then just, again, looking at transactions and from an e-com standpoint, what's a normal type of transaction and what's not normal quantities that are being purchased, like similar to ORC, you know, if they're targeting multiple high dollar items, that kind of translates over to the e-com space as well. So having that background just it helped. Well, I imagine too, it helped with the problem solving piece, because I know just from what little I know about ORC side, sometimes you'll identify yeah, highly thefted items and decide to put them in a different part of the store or perhaps put them, you know, have tags on them so they go off when somebody walks out, things like that. So because you're doing the investigations piece, you're looking at the data and you're using the data to tell a story, which is what we often do on the e-commerce side the data that you're looking at for in-store is still data, right? And you're looking at what's normal, what's not normal, what's highly thefted, what's not highly thefted, and then thinking of a solution for that so that less thefted. It doesn't mean that we're ever going to completely eradicate it, but I think our goal, both whether you're on the store side on organized retail crime or your e-commerce, and chances are you're working against a lot of organized retail crime there too, is looking for the pattern and then making their job harder. It's not that we're ever going to make them go away, but let's make it not worth their time or their money, or at least to slow them down or to send them somewhere else or to just not make it worth it. Would that be similar too? Yeah, exactly. And we hit on a little bit about the Corca, the creation yeah. of Corca to be able to network with yes. our peers around in the loss prevention world. And again, with law enforcement as well. It's very similar, obviously, in the e-com space as well, because criminals don't target mm. just one store, one retailer. They they use the same schemes until they get caught and then they move on to the next retailer. So if we can learn from the mistakes that we made to prevent those mistakes from happening at other retailers mm. and we can communicate on those about those things, that's where it's very important to be able to connect and with your peers and talk through those things. And so Corker really helps that. I know that you obviously host a meeting every other week as well that I join where we can talk about those things as well with our peers and the MO of the things that they're seeing in the fraud space to help me prevent it or, you know, again, at least reduce the risks or reduce the losses that we see based on what other people's losses. And so there's there's definitely a lot of similarities. And when you talk about, you know, the ORC and the e-com world, there's a lot of moving parts on both Um, sides, right? So on the ORC side, you're identifying the booster, the one who's actually coming in and and stealing, but they're not, they're just a low level crook who reports to someone else who there's a financer and then there's fencing location. So it's very similar to all the moving parts in the e-com world too, when you're looking at trying to put an investigation together and looking at multiple IP addresses or devices and all of those different things, you're connecting the dots, right? Mm. And so it's the same, it's the same type of environment or the same type of investigations just in different worlds. And so there, I think that, yeah, again, they're, Having that experience definitely helped me. And then having the experience just being in store and then on the ORC side as well, it helped me from credibility, Mm. I guess, with with my store teams, with the field teams, building credibilities amongst your peers. And again, going back to developing contact, because Mm. in this world, in the fraud world here or fraud fighting world, we are heavily reliant upon each other to have those good contacts and to reach Mm. out and say, you know, what are you seeing? I'm seeing this. And again, for me, and we're going to talk a lot about this probably on the call here today is about relationships, right? And so building relationships, whether it's in, in your own company or whether it's outside of your own four walls to help you combat the fraud that's happening. Yeah. Well, and obviously I couldn't agree with that more because I do try to enable as much merchant collaboration as I can in my role or really within my independence, I guess. And I'm grateful that you are part of it and that so many just incredibly intelligent people are. There's so many times when, you know, one company will say, hey, we're seeing this and it's really weird. And another company will say, oh, yeah, we saw that. And this is what it is. And this is how we fixed it. And then the next week, 
it's the company that saw the last MO and the last issue who can help somebody else, right? And so it's, it's not, it's always give a penny, take a penny. And that's something that I really enjoy. And especially, and Diana and I are actually going to be talking about this more next week. She's also in our group. I've seen, I don't think those refund fraudsters have known what hits them with the companies that are in our group because we've been able to really learn from each other very quickly and know, you know, and because I've been at the high level, I can see, okay, as soon as a company addresses this one, then this is what happens. I mean, there's a very clear pattern of exactly what their roadmap is. And it's, I think we've definitely shortcutted that time by a lot. And I always get so excited when I see any one of your brands mentioned in some of the groups that I casually observe here and there saying they're, don't mess with them. It's too hard. I'm like, because, and a lot of it is high tide raises all boats when you're able to share that information. And yeah, your companies are all competitors in every other department, but this one. And it, there is, it's also, I think, in addition to the best practices and everything else, I think the camaraderie has been very helpful too, especially during the COVID times. But just to know, okay, I'm not the only one fighting this battle, whether it's internal or external, because we've got both of those. Yeah, and most definitely, like you, you said, we have to communicate because the fraudsters communicate, right? They're the 100%. ones that are, they're educating each other. So we have to do that same thing to educate each other how to fight. And there's collaboration on the data side that a lot of people gather, depending on the fraud purveyor they use or the network that they're part of in different ways. But then there's always the best practices side and just the MO and, and the human side that needs to be talked about too, because the data can only tell you so much. Of course. So... When you got to e-commerce and then, you know, you got a chance to learn under some people who did a really good job with what they had, and then they moved on and you were given the reins because you built that credibility. And fraud biting is a lot about building credibility because you come internally and people are like, who are you and who do you think you are? And then once you're able to show, I do what I say and I say what I mean, and I'm going to protect the company, but I also want to help you too. It just builds and that trust is so valuable, not just for fraud fighting, but for the company overall. So what was the landscape like when, you know, took over and then what did you, where'd you go from there? Yeah. So when I, I took over, obviously it took some time to, to understand e-commerce fraud and just all the acronyms, the lingo and all the acronyms, <laughs> of course. Yes. Alphabet soup. And so, yeah, it definitely took some time, but coming from it, from a different perspective, it allowed me to look at things as someone who, again, coming, who comes at it from a different area of loss prevention and to see it as an outsider. And so what we had, don't get me wrong, it worked well. Our chargeback rates were good. At least at that time, we thought they were really good. They appeared to be good. Our sales were moving in the right direction, but it was an extremely manual process. And so when we'll talk specifically about holiday times, when most people outside of retail, especially outside of loss prevention in retail <laughs> are so looking forward to the holidays and the family vac family time and all of those times that are supposed to be great times to, to build memories. Instead, we are looking at it from a lens of, oh, no, here we go. It's that time of the year again. Kiss We're never going to get out of the office. Yep. <laughs> That's right. So late October, it's like, I love you, honey. I'll see you in January. Yep. And, and looking at it from, you know, again, as an outsider, looking at that, like that to me, it was not a sustainable hmm. way to continue to go forward. And especially the ebbs and flows of e-com. And this was all pre-COVID. Hmm. No one could predict what was going to happen for COVID, right? And I thank God that, you know, that we got our new process in place hmm. before COVID. Because yep. I could not imagine doing what we did then. And I, I had a team, a fairly large team, doing manual review of our orders. And, you know, at the time, if we could review for the orders that we re did review, if we could get through those, get them approved within, say, 48 hours, two days, like that was good. That was the SLA, right? And so that's what we, our expectation was. But then you start to, you know, again, as an outsider, you look at things a little differently and like, mm. there, there's got to be a better way. There, it has to, we can't continue to hire new people for the holidays yeah. and get them trained up in a matter of two or three weeks. And then holidays ends and we're letting them go again. And like this constant just mm. rotation, you know, the mm -hmm. revolving door. Because fraud is also um, a specialized skill, right? 
manual review. It is, it's exactly. important. Yeah. You can't just hire anyone off the street. And and it's not that that's the way for everything, but customer service is a little bit easier to hire for and staff up for the holidays because you can give scripts and things like that. But manual review requires people to think outside the box. It requires, you know, people to really think things through and really understand the situation and the context of everything. So it's not That's just right, it? that it's a lot to hire and then, you know, let go and, and all that stuff. But it's also the situation I know a lot of fraud teams have had around this piece is if you just hire people that are okay, then your customers are going to suffer because chances are that good order that looked a little risky is going to get canceled because somebody didn't think, oh, well, is it possible that they're shipping to their dorm room? Or, oh, is it possible that they're, especially holidays, they're shipping it to a family member? Can I verify that they know them? Okay. They're not thinking about all those contexts. So you're also risking impacting your customers a little bit too. Right. And to your point, I mean, you know, it, it is a very unique skill set. You know, how, if you're bringing somebody in who has loss prevention background, they tend to be more. Yeah. They tend to reject more orders, right? They're going to be more restrictive. Right. Whereas if you bring somebody in from the customer service side, they're giving away the farm. Right. right. So it, it's trying to find that middle ground mm-hmm. and it's a very unique subset. So, yeah, trying to find the right people to fill those roles. And once you hire them, you uh, don't want to. Yeah. And once they're trained and they're good, the last thing you want to do is let them go in January because. Right. But they're good. The budget's the budget, right? Right, exactly. But you don't have the volume to sustain them. Exactly. And, you know, and and looking at that, uh, again, we felt like at the time we were in a very good space with our sales, our chargeback numbers, but there was still opportunity to get better. And that's as fraud fighters, that's what we're always doing is looking for opportunities to get better. And with the changeover in management here, and again, it's no in no way a, a knock on the people who hired me or who trained me. But also technology changes too, right? You know, the technology that was available when they were managing or when they first came on may not have been available when you came on because things, it feels like technology shifts every three to five years within the fraud industry. And depending on outside factors, like if, you know, a solution provider is acquired and decides, you know, the decision is made not to continually invest in R&D and research development and innovate, then that can also speed up that time frame to where it's it's outdated anymore. And I know that's not the case for you, but just in general, it's something I see where I think that it's a common thing where people feel like we're good enough, right? Like they don't think that there's more progress or they don't think about what could be, or maybe they're nervous about that because sometimes salespeople will say, well, look, we'll just get rid of your manual review team. And you're like, wait a second, I don't want to lay off all my people. I don't want to get rid of my role. What are you talking about? But also, let's be honest, there are some salespeople where it's hard to trust them. And a lot of times they sound the same. This is what I, it's a really big pet peeve of mine, that so many solutions within the fraud space sound the same. So it's easy for people, especially people who haven't been in fraud for, you know, a decade or two or, you know, at least in ORC or LP or something like that to think, you know, it's easy for them to think, oh, they're all the same then. If they all sound the same, then they all do the same thing. And I think one thing you and I can both agree on is that is not the case. (laughs) Not even close. Unfortunately, it's very subjective. That's right. That's right. And to your point, you know, earlier you mentioned about nervous about the change. We talk about this. Don't be afraid of success hmm. and don't be afraid of failure. Hmm. Like you're going to have to fail to succeed at times. And a failure is just an opportunity to learn. And don't get me wrong. We on our path to get to where we are, we made mistakes. We attempted to use other fraud tools like we we had our old one and then we kind of had one in an interim hmm. that just for us did not work. It was just not the right fit. And so it was a failure. But it was it truly a failure? Because it was just an opportunity to learn more about what, what, what does work, what yeah. works better. Yeah. And I uh, talk to my kids and stuff all the time. I have three children and I tell them, like, when you make a mistake, if you learn from it, that's a good mistake. That's yep. okay. You yeah. can make those mistakes. It's the ones that you don't learn from and you keep doing the same thing. That's the problem. <laughs> so don't yeah, be afraid. philosophy in parenting <laughs> and in life. I agree. <laughs> That's right. So don't be afraid to fail. You're going to fail. But mm. if you learn from it, it's not a failure. And then on the opposite side of that, again, what I said, don't be afraid to succeed. And too many of us, we get caught in that mode of this is what we've always done. And yeah. this is it works for us. It looks good. Like on the surface, it does look good. But we get scared to move on and try new things. Because just like you said, what does that mean for my job? Yeah. If I don't do all the manual review, if I don't hold the keys to the kingdom, then does that mean I'm gonna, not going to have a job? And- oh, yeah. Manual review equals control to a lot of people. 
way. Exactly. As does chargeback management internally, which is a whole other story. But just I definitely in having conversations can hear that. And I don't know if they can recognize that fear, but just like, you know, no, I, I this is what I know. And change is scary. And there is some irony, right? Because our jobs, whether you're in LP or ORC or e-commerce fraud, it's to be risk adverse. It's to be the person in your company that's looking at risks and saying, hey, this is going to pose a risk to our company and here's why. But it is really important to change and grow. I mean, if I still see some people even on the consulting side who continually will recommend the tools that worked for fraud 10 years ago to new com- to their clients. And I'm like, that's not going to work for them. It's not going to work in a year. It's not going to work in 10 years. But a lot of times the truth is most companies can't change out the fraud tool every few years. You know, most don't. They can't afford it. So you need to be shopping not just for today's fraud, but for the next several years. And I think knowing, you know, yeah, not being afraid to change. I'm continually afraid of failure, but it has really helped me in my life. I, professionally, it's not so bad, but because I've been in it so long and you can kind of understand, okay, this is going to be the effect of this cause. I've learned a lot over the years, but I think that change in perspective of it's either going to be a success or a lesson. It's not going to be a mistake. It's going to be a lesson. Sure. And by sometimes if you hadn't have chosen that intermediary tool that was like, wow, this is not at all what we need. You know, you may not have found what you really needed because you're asking different questions. That's right. We, you go into it. And it, for me, coming into to the e-com space without knowing any other way than what, yeah. what I was taught. Right. Like, I don't know what I don't know. And again, like you said, try, trying that intermediate tool there, that one in between there that just didn't work. Like that taught me a lot hmm. through that failure. It taught me a lot what I did need. And so I knew that I needed something that could flex up and down with our business hmm. right? without having to hire staff and lay off staff all the right. time. Like it just didn't work. And, and again, like had we been going through this manual review process when COVID hit, hmm. I could have tripled my staff and it still would not have been enough. Right. And so that's where you have to have a company, a fraud tool that can grow and flex with you Mm -hmm. as you grow or as you go through hard times. Mm -hmm. Both are just as important. And and that, again, that's what taught me what I needed. Mm -hmm. And again, having a supervisor who understood my language and understood my background and could and went through it with me, had gone through a lot of those same steps, helped me, helped us to align on where Mm -hmm. we needed to go as a company. And So again, that goes back to that relationship, right? So it's internal relationships, external relationships, and knowing that when you change that fraud tool, it's not going to be just a flip the switch and everything's perfect, right? Thinks that they've got that silver bullet, right? Well, on April Fool's Day, I did. <laughs> I know. <laughs> they called April, I called an April Fool's called silver bullet, but just for one day, because that's, you know, as long as it would work. That was enough. But everybody thinks they've got this, you, that they're going to just flip the switch and turn it on. And it's going to be yeah. perfect, but it's not. Mm-mm. It's never going to be because every company is unique. My my company is very different than Gary's company or Diana's company. Mm-hmm. They have very different perspectives on the way that they. Even though you guys fraud. are all in retail. Yeah. Exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it's constant monitoring mm-hmm. and the trust, but verify. I yeah. trust that my tool is going to work, but I want to verify that it's giving me the results that I really, truly need out of it. And what looked great three years ago would look terrible today. Yeah. And so it, it's constantly evolving the way we think about our fraud tool. It's constantly evolving about what we see and accept as as approval rating, as a, mm. as a chargeback rating and never accepting what you have. Like yeah. always challenging to be better. And that's not just in, in our fraud tool. That's just in life, right? right? Like never accept what you have. Always challenge to make yourself better. And so it's the same way we look at our fraud tool. It's the same way we look at our business every single day. Well, and I think that that's such a good point because, you know, just like in any industry, there's lots of different personalities and different people and everything else. And I get to know so many of you that I get to see what makes a successful fraud leader and what makes a successful fraud program. And while we call it fraud, we know what we really mean is profit protection because there's so many opportunities and there are, you know, I think that the personalities are the people who don't do as well or whose metrics, the data won't lie, right? So you look at the metrics or the questions that they ask or the frustration that they have or the negativity that they see something through. Oh, we could never get there. Must be nice. You guys have a big budget. No, we had to chip away at this every single day, you know? 
I think a lot of times the people who don't run as good of a front team are the ones who are afraid of change or who don't want to put in the work and don't want to continually change, right? So they'll put in a frontal or sometimes it's the company doesn't think that they need to hire somebody with fraud knowledge or expertise because we got this new solution and the solution told us we don't need anyone. Well, yeah, they don't need anyone checking up on them and holding them accountable. Why are they going to tell you that you need to have a fraud manager on hand in addition to having a solution? But also there's so many opportunities beyond payment fraud. And I think that's something else that you've gotten to realize too. And I think more and more, all fraud teams, especially in retail as a good example, it's no longer just about payment fraud anymore. It's about promo code abuse. It's about and loyalty fraud. It's about refund fraud or refund claims fraud. It's about all these other pieces. There are several retailers that have said that their returns, just their INRs alone, their inventory not received claims are three to 10 times as much as they lose in chargeback. And part of that's because they already have a successful fraud program in place, so they don't lose a lot to chargeback. But the other part of it is there's been no one manning that ship before. Customer services job was just to make sure that the refund claims were filled out correctly. Not that the customer was lying or not, because it wasn't at the scale it is now. So things exactly. have changed so much. And so when you're able to, you know, it's kind of the difference. And I heard this phrase recently. It's the difference between having a tool work against you or technology work against you and having it work for you. And you can have it work. I think that the fear is if I put something new in place that says that it will reduce my manual review, that says it will reduce my decline, that which means increasing customer sales, which means increasing customer service and well, customer experience and be able to increase sales and doing all those things. Well, gosh, what am I going to do? Well, you have to continually train the model. You have to continually provide feedback to the team. And especially if you go from a rules-based system to machine learning, it needs to be fed right. And you also need to continually pull up those rocks and see what's underneath. And not everybody wants to do that. But those of us that do, we get to sit back two, three years later, like you're doing now and go, wow, we came a long way. That's right. It's constant. Like I said, you're constantly challenging what, and as you said, like you put good in, you get good out, right? Yeah. So you have to give that feedback. As I said, it's not flipping a switch. Like Mm-mm. machine learning is great, but it's only as good as the, d- as the data that it's receiving. <laughs> and so you have to constantly be putting that data back in. And again, from a unique perspective of your company, every mm-hmm. company is going to see things differently. And giving that feedback, not only back to the machine, but whoever your fraud provider is working with that fraud provider and saying, hey, these are my challenges that I'm mm-hmm. still having. And I need your help in identifying this. Mm-hmm. And it's not always about just first party fraud or, you know, no. or, or, excuse me, third it's not always card. about third party. You know, it's about the policy abuse, right? It's <laughs> all of these different things like you talked about. And so looking back three years ago, like there was no way I could have thought about mm. loyalty abuse or INR fraud or like refund fraud. There's, I ne- would have never had time for that. You know, you're working 13, 14, 15 hour days just trying to stay ahead of the mm. fraud chargebacks mm-hmm. and the rule changes and yeah. all of these different. So mm-hmm. There's no way that you could possibly think about those other things that are affecting the company. And let's face it, none of us work in silos. Like Mm -mm, whatever I do for the, from it, let me say it this way. None of our work is going to stay in a silo. It's going to affect every Mm. part of the business, right? And so if I want to cut my chargebacks and I just start rejecting more orders, what's going to happen? That's going to increase the amount of calls that are happening Mm. on the customer service side. Mm -hmm. That's going to increase the amount of, of work that has to be done on that side, which eventually is going to come back to you. So you we talk about, again, again, going back to those relationships. I told you we were going to hit on it many times here. And so having a seat at the table when things are happening in the customer service world, in the marketing world, operations, all of those things, they're going to have a direct effect on your fraud. They're going to have a direct effect on your tool and you're going to have a direct effect on them as well. And so making sure that you're involved in all of those different meetings. even when you don't necessarily see the benefits of it at the time. And that's one of the things I I joke with my former boss who who got me into the e-com fraud. I, she would send me to have me a part of all of these different meetings. I would sit in on them and I'm like, I don't even know what they're talking about. How, do, <laughs> how am I going to, how am I going to add any value to this? Mm. And how has this added any value to my day? Mm. But what it did was I was there to listen to their problems. So when I have a problem, they're now there to listen to my problems. And mm. so we worked together collaboratively. And I think that's that for me, if you don't get anything else out of this call today or this this recording here today, I think for me, those that are listening, build those relationships across your organization. Mm. It is the most important thing you can do as a fraud fighter is to have good relationships with your customer service team. 
to have good relationships with operations. He used to have a, a coworker that was in the marketing side of it. And he would call me up and he'd, he would always, I'd answer the phone and he'd say, what's up there, sales prevention? You know, we joke about it. So, But now you have a really, really good relationship with the marketing team, right? Because it takes time, but you're able to, with that credibility and, you know, yeah, to your point, uh, showing them that you can help them do their job better, help one helps them want to help you do your job better. I always say like your first time meeting somebody else in another department should never be, here's what you can do for me. You know, it should be, hey, I want to learn how I can help you. Here's what I do. Here's how I do it. Here's what I have access to. How can I help you? And then it becomes that symbiotic relationship where down the line, yeah, you might be putting out a fire for them at one point, but then down the line when you need to say, hey, you know what? I need your team to do this or or this is what's happening here. I think that there's so much value and it probably sounds like, I don't know, like two people that have climbed a mountain and other people are sitting at the bottom of the mountain going, how the hell? It must be nice to be up there. It's like, oh, no, no, no. It took hard work every single day and it kept keeping at it and never being okay with with just okay, never being okay with the status quo, whether that's with a fraud solution or with types of fraud or whether that's with relationships internally. It, it makes a world of difference. Definitely. And you hit on it earlier about the chargebacks and the INR claims and everything. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the chargeback side is just such a small portion, it's barely the tip of the iceberg. And I think this is where people within our, our peers, like the, the, that struggle to mm-hmm. to capture this data. And that's the accommodation side of the INRs. And so when I looked at it, won't go into specifics, but but the chargebacks represented about two and a half to three percent of our actual losses when mm. it came to INR claims. I believe the that. other the other 98, 97, 98 percent was coming from accommodations. What's customer service job to take care of the customer? And they're yep. not doing anything wrong. They're doing what they're supposed to do. But if you're not working with them and developing reporting to say, how many times do we not get, how many times do we, we make an accommodation for a customer when they claim that they didn't get the product? And then how many of those people do it multiple times? (laughs) And so you start to put these pieces together and you, and that's, we talk, you're talking about being scared of your success, of being scared of success so that you're going to put yourself out of business. Yeah. If you put yourself out of a job, no, you're just going to open yourself up to find more avenues Mm -hmm. of revenue for your company. Yes. And when you can do, that's when you build the credibility. (laughs) Not just with your peers, but with your executives. Oh my goodness. Yes. I couldn't agree more. I and you're absolutely right. But to your point, why are people going to call their bank and say, Oh, I didn't get the package if all they have to do is call your customer service and say that and there's no accountability, there's no questions about it, there's no, oh, huh, that's happened three times now. Maybe we need to send this to a different address. Maybe we need to have signature required, things like that. And it and putting parameters around your claims is not going. I mean, if you as long as you do it right and you understand what those differences and details are between the abusive claims and the claims that are legitimate, because there definitely are. And especially during COVID, we saw a lot of illegitimate claims. But we also saw a lot of illegitimate claims. But putting those parameters around it, that just helps your company save more money. And also it's a brand reputation thing too, because as long as all somebody has to do is pick up the phone and claim whatever the heck they want to, and there's no double checking it, then they all think you're a bunch of suckers, right? And they're telling people, why are you paying full price over there? You can just call and say you didn't get it. And so I think that there's so many opportunities there, as well as you're showing the rest of your business, hey, I don't just care about the profits here. I care about the profits everywhere. And I want to help protect our company as much as possible. And I think it's because we got really good at finding payment fraud. We always do better. And I definitely think that there's a lot of room for improvement, especially depending on the types of tools and the types of people that are leading the teams and all of that. Because we are such an emerging industry, there is there's not a lot of uniformity yet, but across the board. But at the same time, it's because of that that now there are new kinds of fraud. Right. Like we batten down the hatches here and here, but now they're coming through somewhere else. That's right. They're not going to quit. They're just going to find another avenue. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to so try we have to, too. instead of always playing catch up, we've got to try to get a step ahead at some point. And it's just it's a challenge. I lost my train of thought of where I was going. That's OK. <laughs> go um, actually, I was going to ask you when you've done and- so much over the last few years in your role amidst a lot of changes within retail. You know, you talked about it like COVID made retail explode and then 
things shifted afterwards. And I think a lot of people were, you know, try, hoping that that would keep building and keep building and change. And there's just been a lot of changes in retail that have made everything crazy. But the fact that you've built the strong foundation to bring on more losses, be, bring on more opportunities to bring more revenue as well as protect more profits has been a real value to your company. And I know that they know that. And I've learned so much from you over the last few years. And so I'd love to have you share a little bit more about some of the other things you would recommend that fraud fighters think about as they're thinking about their role in their company, or if they look or they kind of assess things and think, well, must be nice to have customer service listen to you, or must be nice to have operations listen or whatever. What tips do you have for them? Because it isn't, right? You have to put in the sweat equity, but it is so worth it. Exactly. It, again, it didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of, it took a lot of proving and it took a lot of, I told you so's without saying the, I told you, it so took painful. a lot of, <laughs> it, it, when you want to say it and yep. you just don't say it, but you've got to, you're building a relationship by not, mm. I could always win the war of today and say, I told you so, or I could, or excuse me, I can win the battle of today with, yes. I told you so, or I can win the war by getting them on my side to build that relationship long-term and mm. so that I know I need them in the future. And don't always take the opportunity to say, I told you. Instead, it, be the bigger person. It's hard. It's hard. I know. Well, but, I'm also laughing we because I literally have this post-it and you can't see it because it's also been here so long. It's been torn up or whatever. But this is from uh, one of our retailer calls. And I can't remember. I think I do remember. I think it was probably Diana that said it. But it was one of the hardest things about being a fraud leader is not openly gloating when someone something happens that you told them so. That's right. So laughing because I'm like, yep, I literally wrote that down because I was kind of wanting to work around. I was wanting to do something around that. I don't know what it was going to be for an episode or a LinkedIn post or something. And I wrote that down because I think that all fraud fighters can really relate to that, right? Because it is easy. It would be easy to win the battle and just be like, I told you so. Now will you listen to me? But instead it's, hey, you know, sorry that happened. And they know that you told them so, you know, and then they come back. Before they do something again, before something changes again, and hopefully say, hey, what would you think? And the first time you can't just tell them like, this is what you need to do. It's I think this or that. And then you start to build that credibility. I couldn't agree more, but it is hard not to say it. (laughs) It is. It is. And I always, for me, I always, when I bring suggestions, it's not a, I'm not here to tell you how to run the business. I'm here to tell you the risks that are associated with X, Y, and Z. And then you make the best decision that you can make as an executive, as a leader within the organization. Mm. I'm just going to, I'm here to tell you the risks that are associated with it. And again, another reason why you don't want to say I told you so is because there's going to be a time you're going to be on the other side of that. You're going to be wrong. As Mm. we talked about earlier, you're going to have failures. Don't be afraid of those failures. Don't be afraid to hear no. There's plenty of times where I go to my boss and or other senior leaders in the organization. I think I present something that I think is a fantastic value to the organization and I just get shot down. But instead of being dejected by that, learn from the reason why you got that rejection. What is it about it that did not appeal to that person or to the organization? And and then take that back. And so that the next time you come forward with something, it may even be the same thing in two or three months after you've proven that it should have been in place that I told you. Mm -hmm. And so you come back and say, let's approach it a little bit differently. How, if this is a customer service vice president, how does it affect their world? Yes. If it's marketing, how does it affect their world? If it's operations, how does it affect their world? So mm. learn from those no's, be willing to take those no's and turn it into a yes in the future. And that's sales, really. I think anyone in vendor, well, on the vendor is, side yeah. would be like, that's exactly sales, right? How can I turn this no into a yes? But asking for feedback, you're not trying to sell, well, you're starting to sell them an idea, I guess, but asking why the no is important. And I didn't always do that in the beginning of my career. I just took the no as a failure or as them not understanding and that being their loss. And I'm going to be telling them I told them, but ask you, well, why doesn't it, why does it matter? What matters to you? What matters? And then through hearing their answer, you can also figure out how you can make a change to that proposal or something similar. And now you also know in the future what they care about most because aligning the way you present something to your audience with what they care about, whether that's because it's a KPI of theirs or whether that's because it's something that they just really care about or whatever that is, knowing why, how to you know position it, right? And say, customer service, right? This is how it's going to impact our call times. This is how it's going to impact less call volume, right? Like if we're able to reduce our false positives, 
by doing this and this, then it will reduce your call volume. And suddenly now they're like, oh, how can I help you with that? It's just a matter of negotiating, but you're right. I think too often, a lot of it's because of the personality traits that those of us in fraud have that we just want to be like, don't you understand? We're right. We know it in our gut. So why do I have to explain it? Or we're not always, we're really good at looking at the data, but we're not always good at telling the story or telling the story in different ways to different audience members. That's it's right. such it's not what advice. you know, but it's what you can, it's what you can prove, right? Huh. And it's just like a court of law. It's not, it's not what you know. You know that it's going to happen, hmm. but you have to be able to prove to your leaders and your business partners the reason why you need to do these things. And so again, that all goes back to building that relationship from day one. It's not going into the room and saying, what, here's what you can do for me. It's what can I do for you? And mm-hmm. then you start to slowly get there to where those, you get less and less no's and more and more yeses because of that credibility that you. But it's hard to only- be patient when you're in front and you see how much money is being lost or you see how many people are stealing from your company. I think that's part of it. I've often had this and it got me in trouble a couple of times in my role in the operation side of being, and once or twice on the consulting side too, of me being like, you guys are losing so much, like over a million dollars a month here. I just want to fix it. I want to fix it. I don't want to slow down and explain to you why we need to fix it or what we need to do. I just want to do it. I just want to put out the fire. I don't want to have to tell you how and why and, da, 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 and get approval to turn on the hose and everything else. But you're right for the long term, for the war, you have to slow down and do those things. And you have to be, yeah, it's a re- they're really good points. I feel like, I don't know, I could turn this episode into like Alan's 10 commandments for fraud leaders. I, and I think they'd be gems. I, I wouldn't know if, I don't know if I'd go that far, but again, <laughs> it's just a matter of, it's just building that credibility over time. It, mm-hmm. It's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to be trusted day one and you shouldn't, you don't deserve mm-hmm. to be trusted day one. You have to make mistakes so that you can learn how to succeed. And that it, applies to people who have done the job in another company. And that's something I see a lot of people have a hard time with is I had built the credibility at my last company. So this company should know. And that got me the job because I interviewed off of that credibility and off of those successes. So my new company should know right off the bat that I know what I'm talking about and they should do everything I say. And I'll admit that I entered a job like that and it didn't end well. There were a lot of other factors outside of it that also impacted it for sure. But hindsight is always 20-20. But you're right. That's a, you bring up such good points. I really do think that they are really, I mean, always words of wisdom. I appreciate it. Uh, again, we've all been there. We in this role have very strong personalities and we believe in what we say because we prove it with the numbers day in and day out. And you know, I was in the same position, even within the company, leaving the field side and coming to the e side, I was kind of the go-to guy on the field side. Mm. If somebody, somebody had a question, they came yeah. It's it's very difficult to start over and feel like you don't know it, but we got to be humble enough to do that. And that's when, again, you're, that's when you're going to get that credibility from peers and executives and stuff too. So, you know, I guess the other bullet point I'd say to start wrapping things up for you as well is I talked about it earlier, always checking what you're getting out of your fraud tool, looking at the results day in and day out and not just like the big picture results because they may look great on the surface, but digging into the different sectors for us, whether it was registry orders, if you see a higher rejection rate, because on the surface, registry orders look like fraud when you have multiple credit cards, making purchases, shipping them all to one address, that looks like fraud like for us <laughs> on right? the surface, right? Yes. But it's in not, retail, it's a registry yeah. purchase. And so you have to, you, you have to dig into each and every one of those sections. And I mentioned it before, like you, the, your fraud tool is going to give you what you put into it. Mm. They're going to give you back, they're willing, to, whatever you're willing to accept, they're willing to give you. And so if you're willing to accept a 90% or an 80% or a 70% acceptance rate, and you're willing to accept 5% chargebacks or whatever that may be, that's what, that's what you're going to yeah. get. You always challenge where they are to see how we can improve, mm. how they can improve. And at the end of the day, it's going to make you better, going to make your company better, and it's going to make your fraud tool better. A hundred percent. I think that's such a good thing to start to end on because I think too often people accept what they're given. And sometimes... I think another lesson you'll learn kind of speaking of failures can turn into lessons. If you're trying to hold your fraud to your company and the support staff, you know, whether it's account management or customer success, and you're trying to ask, why hasn't this performed or why can't we get this better? Or, okay, I saw the big picture and I drilled down into, you know, this line of business or that thing. And this should be different. How can we, you know, do you need more data from me? What do you need from me? Or how can you help me, et cetera? And once you raise your expectations of them, 
if they don't meet those expectations for you or exceed them, whether that's because you have a new problem that they don't have a solution for yet, but they realize there are a lot of you that are saying that this is important. So, you know, let's get together or whatever that the situation is, the specifics are, if your fraud tool doesn't want to meet you there and they, or the company that works for them doesn't want to meet you there, or they gaslight you and say, oh, everybody else has, nobody else has that problem or nobody else has an issue. And I see that happen too often. And it's always with the same companies. It's like trend analysis in a different way, you know, where if somebody complains to me about their provider and they don't tell me who it is, I have a 95% success rate of guessing who their fraud provider is. And it's that because I wish that those fraud providers would change, but some don't, right? But I guess my whole point is just to build off of what you're saying, that they, they're willing to give you what you're willing to accept. If they push back and they tell you it's your problem or they're not willing to go back and ask the right people within their company the right questions and fight for you. And that's that's a lesson, right? That's a message in itself. That's telling you maybe it's time that, you know, to move on too. So I think it's looking at whether you get the, I think overall theme is what of everything you said today is whether you get the response that you want or not, there's a lesson in there. That's right. You asked earlier about when we were looking for a new fraud tool, what was I looking for? Yeah. And one of the most important things I was looking for was a company that was willing to listen mm. and willing to change, willing to make adjustments for my business specifically. Yeah. And that can be hard to do. And I think there are a few that do as much as we know we're collectively hard on solution providers. But I'll also sometimes see the same solution provider be really good for one company or one manager or a group of them and not so good for the others. And usually when I kind of look a little bit further, it's oh, because the ones that they perform for and the ones that are happiest with them are usually the ones that are also holding them to account. Usually the companies are like, wow, I really like these guys. They're the ones that are saying every time they have a call, hey, why isn't this higher? Why isn't this higher? Let's keep getting this better. Let's keep getting this better. And the fraud provider listens to them. Same fraud provider, but different merchant who just goes, oh, okay, that's all right. Okay, cool. All right, cool. They're probably going to go behind the scenes with their with their peers and say, wow, we, we don't have a good solution or, you know, they're not willing to help me. You didn't tell them that they need to. You didn't raise your expectations. Right. And they can't fix what they don't know is not broken. Yes. Same thing with you. You can't fix it if you don't know it's broken. So, <laughs> well, I think there's a good it. lesson for fraud providers in that too, right? Obviously, is you might, we know someone in common who, uh, another account manager at one time said that the three people that called him most in his phone were his mother, his wife, and her, and the merchant. And, but that merchant has also been extremely happy with her provider because he picks up the phone that many times. He listens. It probably is broke. She's probably the biggest pain in his butt. But at the same time, she's happy with it because they have really good results. So I think your point of you can't just flip the switch and expect it to work. You also can't just assume, you know, that you're going to get the best results if you aren't looking at them too and holding them accountable and asking why, as well as to what you just said, explaining your business to them because every business is different. You know, hey, I know that you work with other retailers, but our company has a registry and this is how we, and that might look like fraud, but it's not for you. And here's how we classify those orders. And here's how you can tell the difference so that you can feed the model. And next time those don't look like fraud as much, but still orders that aren't registry that have those fires are. I think there's just so many nuggets of good wisdom in here, Alan, that I I always learn from our chat. And I am really glad that my listeners get to learn from them too. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we close this out? No, I don't think so. And again, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And, and I always learn from our chat as well. So I mean, it, the feeling is mutual. Mm -hmm. I appreciate the the groups that you put together also. That is, it's taught me a tremendous amount over the last two and a half, three years. And so I do appreciate it. And I highly recommend anybody that's not involved in it to get involved in it. Yeah. It, it may seem like you, you don't have time for it. You don't have time not to get in there. And <laughs> it's true. You've got it. You got to make the time. I could, I obviously couldn't agree more. That's, those are the calls that, those are the kinds of calls that when I was a merchant really benefited me. And, you know, it was because they weren't being done anymore or being offered anymore and anywhere else that I was like, I have a Zoom link. Sure, I can put together. And I try to also share stuff with you guys when, because I get 
to see different things or learn about different role changes or things like that that can be helpful. And it's a two-way street, but I learned so much from you guys. Well, Alan, thank you again for sharing this time. You know, you have three or four titles because you are very busy, but I really appreciate you taking the time to share this information. I know that you and I both have a passion for, you know, helping other people along the way, right? We've done everything from ground zero and, you know, reinvented the wheel and we might as well share some of our tips and tricks along the way to help other people. And that's right. I appreciate yeah, that's I appreciate important it. to you. I appreciate that that's important to you. Most definitely. Thanks again. And I look forward to always talking with you soon. Thank you, Chris. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.